My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts and let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery. Called everything you ever taught me and um, you is pretty much everyone anyone that I've ever come across and, and for the most part probably live in my head uh, so I argue with them a lot and, <laughs> that's what I mean. and, um, and the book itself is how it, it captures my journey as I walked from Mexico to Canada uh, during the pandemic last year uh, obviously the pandemic hadn't started um, particularly uh, when I started my journey, but it, it very quickly became a big part of 2020 for everybody. And, yeah. uh, and the fact that I was even walking from Mexico to Canada was nuts in itself. And, uh, and as I described myself as, you know, sort of fat, female, occasionally funny, very frumpy, in my fourth year of recovery. And if I dare say, am I allowed to swear a bit? Yes, ma'am, please. Um, <laughs> so, a bit more, so it was all the Fs, really. And... Um, and it, and it captures my journey from Mexico to Canada. Like I said, I was I was mid forties. I was really unfit, and this was not something you would would suggest that I would do and succeed at doing. So, where in Mexico did you begin the journey? Well, I started right on the border. So I started in Southern California, um, oh, near awesome. Tijuana. Uh, yeah, well, Campo, I think, is the nearest town. So it's just a couple of miles south of that. And so literally you you tag the border and then you turn around and you walk in a northerly direction. Um, <laughs> and you, you don't get lost too much. That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> and I did. That's amazing. So how many miles is that? Uh, well, officially, the whole trail is 2,653 miles. Uh, what I hadn't conveniently what I hadn't taken into account is of course you have to walk on and off the trail to get resupply so I have no idea how many miles I actually walked beyond a hell of a lot <laughs> yeah man that is amazing honest like I'm in pretty good shape I would not take that on I, I really wouldn't do it I mean mm. I love that you did it I don't think physically I could do it I would fall apart right around mm. San Diego I mean, I didn't think I could do it until I was about two weeks from Canada. And then it was like, oh, I think I might, I think I might make it now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it was, you know, one of the things I learned is uh, as a recovering alcoholic and, and, and anyone who's ever had any kind of addiction problems is we have levels of fortitude we did not know we had. It's bloody hard work being an addict. It's, you know, particularly the... The, the come down or the recovery from, you know, the actual physical recovery from all that binge drinking that I did, you yeah. know, hangovers are hard, hard work. Um, and actually obtaining the booze and, and, and trying to hide your drinking and, and all of that. Means the stories got, and the lies and the bullshit. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have levels of fortitude that are not appreciated by the common man. And, uh, and I think that's probably the thing I got, you know, when you're doing a through hike and you're walking across an entire country, in this case, America, you're permanently in pain. Your physical body is, is, is really always being battered. And yeah. that's no different from being an active alcoholic. Um, so I was almost in my comfort zone. I just didn't get the great highs that sometimes you got with the booze. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and the, yeah, the, the thing that uh, I, 
That's perfectly stated. The agony, the pain that we put ourselves through chasing our addiction is the same fortitude, as it were, the same focus. Once you flip it on its head towards recovery, that same that 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 same power, if you will, that same superpower. I always say this on my show, and so my guests or my listeners might be bored of it, but I, I really think that recovery is our superpower. That that's mm-hmm. really our cape. And and what you said is spot on for me because I do believe that that it, the the strength lives in us. We don't know it because we've been using it for the dark side of the force. And once you decide to go to um, you know the the good side of the force, everything changes, and you have that power. So I think manifesting in, 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 in the, in the walk of your story, the metaphor works perfectly. I mean, it's really magical. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, and I'm very open about this. I, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous with its famous 12 step program. Yeah. Other, other recovery programs are available. This is just the one that I joined. And sure. because I'm dealing with addiction, I won't, entertain trying anything else if i found something that works i'm sticking with it gotta do that definitely it's too high risk absolutely uh, and so i i sort of embrace that eventually and i didn't rush to this but eventually i embraced the 12-step program mm-hmm. and it was all the principles that i'd learned through that that actually got me to canada you know and because i thought about quitting all the time you know this was too big too hard too difficult too uncomfortable and I think that, again, that's really like early recovery. Um, if I hadn't have been through early recovery, I don't think I'd have made it. Um, and, and, and anyone that I, you know, who, who, is, who is fresh into recovery, I would say this to you, it's bloody hard. And, and, and because, you know, I got into recovery at the age of 41. That's when I crawled into the rooms of AA. And, and I didn't know it then, but I was so emotionally immature. I had such redundant skills for dealing with life, you know. And, mm. and all I knew was to get drunk. And every time I had an emotion, every time something happened, all I wanted to do was check out for a bit. And alcohol is a perfect way of checking out. So, I, I, you know, I, I staggered in bodily aged 41, mentally dead and, <laughs> and physically yeah. about 141. But I didn't realise, you know, maturity-wise, emotionally mature mature wise I was I was a kid you know I, I just couldn't relate to life or, or deal with adult issues and that's where you know alcohol really robbed me um it, it kept me very immature and unable to cope with the harsh realities of being an adult that is so important because I, I didn't know that that had ha- that exact thing happened to me and I'm still recovering from my forced and continued lifetime adolescence as it were Because I I read somewhere or a guest said, and I don't recall the episode, so forgive me, but they had said that the day you become a real addict, and and I'm not talking about measures and you qualify if you do this or that. We know when we're at that fateful day, and it's usually a blur. But you're the age you were when you really picked up the bottle or the drug, whatever that that means, at that level, that's all you can do. So for me... I have been an eighth grader mentally and emotionally until about four years ago, three and a half years ago, which is frightening because I didn't know I was creating my own pain, my own misery, my own cycles of hell, chasing addiction for the alcohol, the cocaine and the cigarettes, but dealing with life's problems and life's pleasures, by the way, like an eighth grader and everything was uh, turned into by my own force of nature and my inability to cope with things into a disaster. And I, I'm forever sorry and apologetic to those that I've ruined in my wake. Uh, but but what you said is so important because, and that's the beauty of kind of the phoenix of recovery. When you come out of the ashes, you realize that every day you can't believe how much stronger you were today than yesterday or a minute ago, or I'm not gonna drink, I'm gonna deal with this the right way. And all these emotions become real. And you have to figure it out. Like, I don't know what to do with this. I would normally go do that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deal with this emotion for real. And I think it's absolutely amazing. So PI, you're sitting in a flat in London and you say- I'm not quite in London. I'm in the glorious Cotswolds, which is, I'm in the middle of nowhere in the glorious Cotswolds. Uh, So- uh, as I would say, a good couple of days walk to London. A <laughs> good couple of days walk. And so you're <laughs> yeah. in the Cotswolds. So and you the say to yourself, 
I'm going to walk across America. Like, how do you no, get? No, never. I never, ever said that to myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those, like, one of those sort of situations that I found myself at the border of Mexico. You know, this, this was a, just a series of random happenstances that, and it started with my friend watching a film called Wild, which we all know is terribly cheesy. And she kept badgering me to watch it. And at the time I was trying to be more suggestible. And so she was like, you have to watch this film. No, you have to watch this film. No. And, uh, and she was like, oh, for God's sake, just watch this film. And I have no idea why she was so adamant. And then we yeah. watched it and it's all blood and guts right from the opening scene. And it was just, I'm looking at thinking, why am I watching this film? You know, we're eating salsa and like we're not really eating salsa anymore. And, <laughs> And then I watched the film, she said, now I'm going to read the book. So then I read the book. And then before you know it, you know, I'm an addict. So I just get obsessed with random things. So then yeah. I'm reading books about this, this Pacific Crest Trail that this woman has walked. I'm still calling it the Pacific Coast Trail at this point, you know, as if it, I'm yeah. walking along the beach in California. And, um, and I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And then, you know how I was going in the bath one day and I was looking for something to watch. And it just popped up how to apply for a PCT license. And it was like, oh, look at that click. And it was that very day. And it was, and there's only one day that year that I could apply. And it was like, oh my God. Well, that's serendipity. Oh, well, that's serendipity and a half, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm, I rush upstairs. I run out of the bath. It's literally six o'clock at night. It was like four o'clock in, in the afternoon. And you had to do a couple of courses before you could apply. So I was like, right, I'm going to run upstairs. I'm sat there naked. I'm learning about fires. You know, I'm learning about <laughs> I'm just like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm just watching all these videos and answering all these questions. I get my two certificates and it's like, and now I've got to apply. And I think at that time, you know, the, the demand is, is three or four times per the number of licenses issued. So it's a bit of a, a golden ticket. And I, and I got one and it was like, oh. <sighs> Oh no, oh no. And that's when it really hit me. You know, you said serendipity. And, and one of the things that I've learned in the 12 steps is I, I treat life now as if coincidences don't exist. And that was really my way into the spirituality of the program. And uh, so I booked my plane ticket straight away because I have to then get a, a US visa. Then I realized my passport's expiring. And it's just like, oh, wow, this has created quite the bureaucracy. And um, so it all panned out that I was flying to America on March the 17th. And March 17th is such a significant date. And all the Irish people will be going, yes, it's St. Patrick's Day. And I am not remotely Irish, so it means nothing to me. Yeah. It's my birthday. It's the date that I joined AA. And so it was like, oh, my goodness me, this date is you know, really miraculous. So that was my flying to America date. And actually, mm. with the pandemic and everything that was rumbling on, I, I actually flew a few days before that. So I actually started walking on March the 17th. So then it was like, well, this is destiny. You know, this is the ultimate in freedom. And so, yeah, so it wow. felt as if it, it, the, it was just all the obstacles, all the reasons for not doing it just sort of vanished. And in terms of like the fear, the only way I could deal with it is, you know, that AA way, which is it's over there. I'll worry about that. Thing that's over there and when it becomes here until then i'll just carry on as if everything's grand you know yeah so, yeah just i couldn't even i stood at the mexican border going i'm not really sure i can do this <laughs> i'm not really sure why i'm here well i for, i love the extended metaphor that i mean it literally you challenged you took this challenge on one step at a time and i yeah. it it's such an easy metaphor right because you walked but people don't realize the the the, the grand nature of of that concept Success in anything, not just in recovery, is one step at a time. I mean, you don't go from, you know, a beginner to the championship of whatever it might be um, automatically overnight. I mean, it, it, you have to put the time in, the work in. You have to feel the pain and enjoy the struggle. And I say when people call, what do I do? How do I begin? I, the first thing I always say is, well, stop drinking and, and stop doing drugs. And that people that aren't in recovery think that, well, that's stupid advice. I'm like, no, but that's that's... The first thing you have to do is you, you're done. You have to be done and you have to have your own reason for being done. It can't be because so-and-so said so or to do, it's your, it's your thing. You have to quit for you, whatever that is defined, however you define that for you. And then I say, stop drinking or stop doing whatever it is you're doing that you want to recover from. Then enjoy the struggle. It is going to suck. It's a fight. It's, there's, you know, it's hard. There's going to be days where you can't fucking believe the pain you're experiencing. And then there's going to be days where there isn't any pain and 
in we're not going to get into the whole pink cloud thing and all that stuff here but you you have days where you're like this is amazing and so easy and then that's when you get knocked out right because you you get cocky and and it it is that one step at a time i think that people learn in recovery the joy is in taking the next step and enjoying the struggle as it comes because if you don't enjoy the struggle the growth and the pain that comes along with it and deal with it the right way that's what you're really that's the problem that we're all solving is we all as you said you get comfortable with the alcohol I did the same thing. Anything that I was celebrating or crying from or whatever the emotion was, I would I would drown it in alcohol and then ride my cocaine boat right through the waves. And, and that's just what I did. And, and I never dealt with anything. So that struggle becomes everything. And I I, I love that this. So tell me more about the, the, the walk. Like I would imagine there had been moments walking through the deserts or the harsh, there's harsh landscapes in that journey, uh, mountains, deserts. Um, I, it comes to mind um, the Tom Hanks film when he's uh, running across America, that the, the images of all the changing landscapes and in, in everything. And for some reason, I don't know why I love Tom Hanks and I love this movie. Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie now. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, excuse me. I'm sorry, P.I. No, no, no. That's what I was thinking. It must be Forrest Gump. But yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. And <laughs> I, so can you share more about the journey and because I'm, I'm fascinated by this there had to be moments of rain and terribly cold weather terribly every, hot every weather. weather system going every weather system before I went I mean I, I'm like I said, I'm in AA so I have a sponsor and so generally that you know that's someone that you can go to with all your fears and, and what's going on upstairs in your head and, and and just to backtrack a little bit you know addicts in my experience alcoholics including you know I don't really differentiate between the two but um yeah. We're expert ruminators and we're expert fantasists. So we're either living in the past or we're living in the future. We're never, we're never quite right here right now, are we? <laughs> and, and, uh, and he said, you know, go away. And Russell says, go away, write down all your fears. Just write down all your fears. And so I, you know, I came back a few days later with this list as, as long as, as and wide and big and huge. And on top of it was how am I going to cope without AA? Because it is part of my structure, you know, it, it, it's that ongoing yeah. fellowship and support mm -hmm. that gives me things, you know, joy and friendship and pleasure and love and, and all of those things. So that was the top thing was I'm terrified of leaving my support system. And then after that, you know, just list everything that could kill you, you know, so it was <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> scorpions. Yeah, <laughs> a car. I mean, you know, <laughs> and, um, and, and so, you know, and he was just like, okay, and then have a look at, you know, have a look at the fears of not doing it. And it was like, oh, well, that's a really good approach. Mm -hmm. We focus too much on the imagination side of things. We don't focus enough on, well, actually, you know, you don't know how you're going to cope with a rattlesnake until you meet one. And you're never going to meet one unless you, you go out there. Yeah. So, of course, you know, you start off from, from Mexico and you start walking and every single sound is a rattlesnake. You know, it's, <laughs> it's really, yeah, like, really. every next oh my like, God, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then the, the, you get to the first mile marker and and I was looking at this mile marker and my pack is really heavy and I've never I've never camped. You know, I've, I've slept in a tent once with, with my ex-husband and I remember waking up, looking at him going, if you ever put me in a tent again, I will divorce you. Yeah. He me but not because i hate camping many many other complaints <laughs> and, all that one. Um, uh, <laughs> and uh you know and i was like i don't you know i don't know how to set up i just didn't know anything i mean i was a complete idiot i should never i should not have been allowed out the house really but i'm at this first mile marker and i'm looking at and i'm thinking wow no one told me that american miles are really really much bigger than british miles it just like seemed like the longest thing in the world and i was just like I can do a mile in 20 minutes back home, forgetting that, you know, a mile without a rucksack at, you know, where I live is 400 feet above sea level. Now I'm 4,000 feet above sea level. And, uh, you know, I don't have a rucksack on. Yeah, of course I can do a mile in 20 minutes with a rucksack on. I couldn't do it in 30. I was like, well, this yeah. is going to take some time. And, um, and I remember thinking that I've made a really big mistake. You know, I'm really, really out of my depth here. And, um, and I, you know, I was expecting loads of people to be around, you know, the 50 people a day are allowed to start. Um, I mean, more allowed to start, but generally 50 people have the license to do the whole distance. 
So I was expecting like hordes of people and I met one <laughs> in yeah. the first few hours. And um and he was like this tall, lanky, very fit, very healthy Australian, and off he bounds, you know, and I'm like <laughs> <laughs> awful and all i could think of was i thank god i've got a big ego and i can't go home yet you know this is just too embarrassing i'm gonna have to at least sleep in my tent once you know and uh and i traveled down with with somebody else um incidentally in the fellowship you know what a network we have and so i'd met them on a facebook group and and they they'd gone marching off i'm gonna do 20 miles today and i'm doing this and i'm doing that and i sounded so confident and i found it so intimidating and then the next, the first night slept alone, terrified. And then the next night, the next day, I bump into her and she's coming the wrong way. And all I could think of is, I'm probably going the wrong way. You know, there's yeah. a problem. And it turns out she quit. And, and despite all that bravado, she'd quit. And I was like, wow, you know, you've outlasted one person. That's a start. You know, so, you know, yes. I think yeah, you know. Well, there's, I, there's two things. I, I think that just kind of using... I'm going to say metaphor a lot because this is a perfect living, breathing metaphor and that that is a perfect carriage for what we're talking about. But your mile one and then the continuation just after that, when people say, I'm only on my first day, I'm only I'm only on day one. Oh, that though, that's a magical moment, a proud moment, a wonderful moment. You have just lived 24 hours free of the chains and the nightmare that you've been living with for however many years or whatever part of your life. So it's so significant that I always applaud, first of all, I put anyone in recovery at any stage, but I, I really go out of my way if I can to like, love, or comment on people who post in groups. I'm a part of a few different groups on Facebook and things. Um, and of course, because of the podcast, I always go out of my way to applaud, like, and give them some sunshine for that day one, because it's so significant. It's so important. And it's people not in recovery or not dealing with addiction in any way don't understand the impact of that or how, or the other side of that, people that aren't in recovery or aren't addicts, when they say, well, you're only on your first day. My, my comment to them is, fuck you. Like, you don't have any idea what that person has just accomplished and what they've gone through to get there. And you're going to dismiss it. It's bullshit. And it pisses I mean, here, me off. Here's the thing. There's many times, I mean, I'm, I'm in one into my fifth year now. And, and, and I still feel very amateur at recovery. I don't yeah, me too. But I would not trade my five years for that first day back. You know, that, that first day without alcohol is brilliant, but it's terrifying. It's hard. And, and it's, it's hard. So when someone says to me, I've only got, one or two days sober and I think you're doing it 10 times harder than I'm doing it oh yeah oh yeah it's very real it's very don't put yourself down because it's it's so tough and and you mentioned it earlier you know that pink cloud effect and I had it I had a relapse so I joined AA 10 weeks later I had a relapse and I had my pink cloud in those 10 weeks and then dropped off dramatically and of course picked up because I hadn't learned how to cope at that point and um and, and I always worry when I see people come in and, oh, isn't this marvelous? Sobriety is fantastic. I've never felt better. And it's like, yeah, just you wait. The people that come in hanging, you know, they're crawling in, they're in bits and they're broken. That's where my hope is. I look at them, I think, for you, I have genuine hope. Yeah. Because addiction is just so devastating. If you have any belief in you that sobriety is easy, it will make sure that it beats you down. No question about it. And that is perfectly stated. You, you have, you come in bloody beaten, raw, broken, like you can't believe that you're even alive at this particular moment. And, and, and that purity of that exposure of your soul, of your entire being mm. is unbelievable. And it's, it, it, it does things to you. And then I, I use that same thing. Like you said, the bravado, and that's true in life. And I've learned in recovery uh, that the people that beat their chest and dangle their fancy car keys and talk about how much money they got or have, excuse me, or the fancy this and the fancy that and how life is grand and all the social media happiness bullshit. It's fake and it's it, it's it's a facade nine times out of 10 and they're hiding and, something. And, and the beauty is in the pain, I think. 
Yeah, for, and for that's me. something that I learned about myself in the book is that I'm so easily intimidated by other people's baloney. You know, they're right. talking and they're talking with such conviction. I'm always stood there thinking I'm such a phony. I'm such an imposter. And these people seem to know it all and they've got it all and they've got <laughs> their shit together. And I'm sort of thinking, yeah, I can barely, I can barely put the kettle on without having an anxiety attack, you know, especially in the early days. Yeah. I think that's what I learned when I, you know, one of the things that I learned along the way about myself was this imposter, this insecurity rules my life. And I was about 2,500 miles into the 2,653 miles. <laughs> and, uh, and, and asked me a real serious question about hiking. American uh, couple asked me a real serious question about hiking. And I turned around and said, well, don't look at me. I know nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm a novice. <laughs> and they were like, you've just walked 2,500 miles. You know everything. And that was like, you know what? You're right. And that's where I always think about when I came first into recovery, you know, the people, there's people in those rooms, they got 20, 30 years of recovery going on. And I'm sat there, you know, the gray haired grade. And, and I'm sat there thinking, why are you still here, you losers? You know, and then somebody will come in and they'll say, I've only got two months. But when I was brand new in, two months seemed like forever. Oh, yeah. I couldn't relate to people with 20, 30 years of clean and sober time. But someone with two months, two days, whatever, small distance more than me, I hung my hat on those people. Yeah. Because you, you, you're doing it and I need to follow you. Um, and that's, that's again, that, that massive insecurity of I just don't know what I'm doing, but I don't want to tell anybody that I'm frightened and I'm terrified and I'm lost and I'm bewildered. And I think that's where, you know, when, when I see people with just a few weeks and just a few months and I think you've got it, you know, if you're still sober and you're still here, you've got it. Just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. It does easier, uh, but it's not easy. It is not easy. And, and I love And I, that's a good point um, that if you're on day one, you get support, not only from, of course, people that are in recovery for 20 or 30 years or 10 years, but you look at the person that's in recovery for seven days, and they'll get you to seven. And then if you're so it's that's the beauty of it, you can, the network and the fellowship is yours, and they're with you. And the I love to have and speak to different, I have some wonderful friends that I've met through recovery who have, you know, 20 or 30 years in, and they're amazing. And I call them very often for support because they, their perspective on recovery is so different than someone that's a year in or a weekend. And the beauty of it is we're allowed to, and this is going to sound selfish, take what we need at the moment to get us to the next day or the next moment to not drink to not use and that's the beauty of, of the fellowship of the network is you have all these people that support you but you have to do it yourself you have to do the work uh, which is which is so great and so and when, when you think that i mean from the research that i did when i was writing the book towards the end of the book and i was looking at you know there's this big thing in AA. i've heard it said over and over again and, and i listened to podcasts uh, you know between one and three podcasts a day when i was walking. That, yeah um so i heard this myth over and over and i really want to do the research when i came back and i did that only two percent of us get and stay into recovery which is like well, what's the bloody point if that's as low as the stats are and i've heard yeah. this over and over from what i can glean and from what modern day research methods are such as they are it looks like 15 percent of us get into long-term recovery well that's a bit more optimistic than two percent you know because you know when i know that two percent thing it's like well why would i bother that means that everybody i meet in aa for example there's only gonna be two two of us like last man and my friend standing at the end you know yeah and i agree percent of it so it shows you what the battle is it shows you what the odds are and how tough it is and so if you're if you're part of the 15 percent today do whatever you did to to stay as part of that 15 percent, and let's grow yeah. that uh, agreed, um, and I, I think that the recovery is the, the one thing. I, I'll say this: I have never looked at or put much into the statistics of who does or doesn't make it and stuff. It, only because it's a very personal thing, and I think you can't start this journey thinking I'm going to fail. You have to be Michael Jordan. Um, in, in the approach that he doesn't care about the shot he missed, he cares about making this shot or winning this game. He doesn't look at the odds and you know fall prey to the percentages, the statistics and all of that stuff. And I liken very often, like I think recovery, you, you can't 
because we're all looking for an excuse to not begin or to quit. And unfortunately, I think statistics in, in many cases pull us, oh, give us something to say, see, I wouldn't have made it anyway, kind of bullshit. Can't do that. You, you have to make it be in spite of that shit. And I, that's like when you like, you know, going back to your walk. I mean, I'm, when you're standing with your back to Mexico, you're thinking in your mind, I'm never going to fucking make it to Canada. But you did. You kept one step at a time. And that, that's the only percentage you should care about is, can I make this next step? Yes or no? And the answer is, of course, yes, I can. And I will. And then off you go. That's it. And I mean, you wouldn't have put money on me making it. Nobody would have. You'd have been insane to put money on me making it. Absolutely. That that sense of, you know, and I hear a lot of, you know, and again, in recovery circles, you hear a lot of, you know, why people fail. And it's actually, well, sometimes just because it's bloody hard. And it it really is hard. That's right. That's right. For some people in this world, life is especially hard. So when no question at all and so it, it is a tough thing like i mean that was the other thing with through hiking is about 20 percent of people give or take depending on how hard the year is actually get to the antithetical terminus you know to canada so though that correlation of of recovery statistics and through hiking statistics was like okay they're both journeys one's very metaphorical as you said and and the other one's very pragmatic very physical um but it was okay what is it we can or I learned from this which was it, it's how much can you cope with and how yes. much can you bear and uh, and I think you know part of the reason I succeeded was because of that belligerent addict uh, personality yeah. I am going to the bitter end <laughs> and, absolutely uh, I'll die and, and uh, as we continue kind of learning more about your your journey which I'd love to learn more about I want to point out that people will fail in their recovery process. Meaning if not everyone, but some people will relapse and they will drink again or they will use again. And to those people listening, if they're listening, dust yourself off. Don't let it be the reason or the excuse that you drink or drug yourself to death. Dust yourself off and carry on and begin. And you don't have to, and I, I'm a, I, listen, I, I don't care if you people are, well, then you're on day one again. I don't give a shit about any of that. I care about being in recovery. You could tell people that you're on day 10,000. It doesn't matter, whatever works for you. But my only advice to those folks, when you're beginning the journey the first time, or you're relapsing and, and starting again, or whatever you're doing, is don't peacock on about it. Don't just dust off, wipe off the blood, and continue. I always find that the strength comes in the grit part of this. Like it, it does like, and I, it's funny because I I realized that I have a podcast about recovery and I talk about it. So it sounds like I'm peacocking, but I'm trying, my hope is that people know that I'm not being hypocritical. I'm saying that better to do it than to post about, I'm going to do it or look what I've done kind of stuff. If you're going to do it, help people doing it. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter how you look. It's how you finish. And you got to just grit it out. And I love that you've done that with your journey. I, I'm dying to learn more about the trap. In rugby, I've heard it said most commonly is, you know, you can win ugly or you can win. But either way, it's a win. yeah absolutely when i walked across america i was not the most i did not have any finesse i did not do this with any (laughs) whatsoever yeah you know i was not a great example of someone doing a good job of food hiking um but i got there and 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 lots of people didn't you know less than 100 of us got there last year and and i was one of those people um that is not pretty it was just not pretty and i think that's like recovery you know i think another trait that i've learned about myself is this this obsession with perfection you know when i came back i really beat myself up for not doing it properly or not doing it thoroughly or not doing it perfectly yeah you did it you did it (laughs) you did it you did it you absolutely did it we have this expectation you get into recovery and you're supposed to be happy joyous and free and smiley and isn't life marvelous you know 24 <laughs> 7 and it's like well that's not how i'm doing recovery you know i have really bad days i have yeah. bad days i have mediocre days and sometimes it's okay yeah. <laughs> you know oh definitely yeah and, um, and that's that's the part of recovery that takes a little getting used to is it's not all rainbows and sunshine and unicorns prancing about it, it. There are days when you feel like you're living in the dungeon, 
But the point is, it you know, it, I, and I I say embrace whatever the emotion is at the moment, embrace it, feel it, live it, learn from it, and carry on. And then the next day, it, you'll things, and then you'll look back a week later and go, I remember how that was, and and you build on this collection of experiences and emotions in a positive way all you do just don't drink call your sponsor whatever you need to do to get through it and and carry on um so you mentioned a few things about the journey I, i'm just curious like can you share a couple stories that uh of what what the walk was like i mean with the rattlesnakes and with the, the inclement weather I, I can't imagine i mean i i would imagine that you went through hell in some cases i i it's got to be i can't imagine Mm. Yeah, I came out with a lot of resentments against the US weather systems. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because for what you know, everything that I'd learned, my geography teachers, I swear, if I need to learn to time travel, go back and correct them. There is snow <laughs> in the desert. Oh, wait, what the hell happened there? You know, I'm climbing yeah. up the sun and there's patches of snow, and then all of a sudden the whole mountain's whited out. And you're you're up to your <laughs> snow and you're in the desert and there's cacti covered in snow, and you're like, this is just not scientifically possible uh, so that was the first thing that, that I had to get my head around uh was you know and what I knew that desert nights I, I'd lived in in Saudi Arabia as a kid so I knew desert nights are cold and, and the daytime you're going to bake um and so I'd you know and that means you have to wear you know bring all sorts of types of clothing for those yeah. conditions but waking up and your tent has collapsed in on you and you're buried under snow because there's been a, a flurry overnight that is not that was not part of what I was expecting. And, and then, uh, gosh, where do I go from there? Then I, you know, I got through the 700 miles of desert and then the next thing you're into the Sierra mountains. Mm. And so you expect snow there, you know, you expect a lot of snow there. And indeed there was a lot of snow there. Um, and snow is miserable. You know, it's pretty in postcards. It's hideous in real life. Um, <laughs> you know, and you just keep falling through and it keeps eating you alive. And you think, I'm just going to have to stay here till, you know, mid-August when the snow is finally going to melt. I could, right. Oh, just horrendous. And, and I remember one day, I was I, one of the, there's a couple of really big bad mountains up in the Sierra. And, and one of them is the John Muir uh, Mountain. Um and it's just it's just a series of gentle mounds. It doesn't look all that bad. It gently works its way up, but it's completely snowbound and icebound. So you're falling through the whole time, and it's so easy to get lost. I got lost loads, and 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 every time you get over one mound, then the next mound presents itself. Like, Hello, here I am. And so it just feels like it's never going to end. Um, and then you finally get to the top and you realize you've got to go and do it all downhill. And downhill is so much harder than uphill. Who knew? You know? Right. And the night before I was doing John Muir, and they, they always say, get up really, really, really ridiculously early so that the ground is still frozen. And that way you can kind of walk on top of the sure. snow. Um, that makes and, sense. Uh, so it makes total sense, doesn't it? What they don't tell you is, you know, you're not going to sleep the night before because, again, your tent's going to collapse all night because there's such a ferocious hailstorm and there's, you know, pieces of hail the size of my hand that it's like, I'm just going to die. And they'll find me you know, in a year's time when I float out through a river. And it was just awful. You know? <laughs> and then there's the lightning on top of the mountains. And, uh, you know, and the things that I was frightened of, the rattlesnakes and the bears, yes, very frightening, but they didn't tell you you have killer bees. And so when I got attacked by a swarm of bees, I was like, I really am going to die. You know, <laughs> they're going to push me off the mountain. Oh, my gosh. And, um, you know, I hadn't thought oh. about that either. Uh, how do you stop them from attacking you? Like, I, like you what do you cry like a girl and you scream a lot and you hope that they take sympathy. And then because uh, you can't run because you've got this rucksack. So it was literally I got absolutely battered by this swarm of bees and and eventually i was like right i'm just going to march I'm, I'm clearly too close to their hive and so i'm there and they're everywhere i mean i'm battering myself i've punched myself all over the place probably did more damage than the bees and i carried on and, and, and eventually they left me alone and unfortunately I, I don't have any you know allergy to bee stings or anything thank god uh, i mean that could have been that could have been it i mean my goodness oh, totally. totally and then you know and then that was a really hard day obviously i'm in pain everything stings and whatever and then I finally get that night to, to where I'm going to camp because you can't just camp anywhere. You know, it, it's quite hard to find spots in certain places. And so I saw this spot and I was like, great, I'm going to put my tent up. And, and I literally went around to the corner to go and have a pee. I came back and the entire 
sort of colony of flies in California had moved in. And I was looking inside my tent and there's thousands of flies in there. And I was like, well, clearly I can't stay here. But now it's like seven, eight o'clock at night. And so I'm exhausted. You know, I've been going 12 hours or so. Right. And um, so I have to, I pack up the tent. I move on. I, I don't know where I'm going to find a space. And I get attacked by bees again. It's like, you're kidding me. You know, there's everything here. That was, a, that was a really tough day. Yeah. So eventually I pitched up and it was this one spot and there was tarantula holes everywhere. And I was just like, do you know what? I'm not so afraid of tarantulas now that I know that it's the bees that want me dead, not the spiders. You know, it's like you get used to anything eventually. Yeah. Did, I, I would have, did the tarantulas ever, I, I'm a bit of an arachnophobe. I let them, mm. I don't seek them out to do them harm, but at least whatever they're doing, they just do it over there and I'll stay over here and we'll carry on about our day. Did the well, tarantulas the ever UK, come out and bother you? I, I Yeah. Well, in the UK, tarantulas, when you say they're over there, they're in zoos. You know, I don't go to a zoo. I never... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing about tarantulas, they come out at night, so you don't actually see any. Uh, and that was that was a bit of a saving grace. So somebody, you know, I, you're walking along the trail, and, and I, I very, because I'm British, you know, and, and I was walking with an American, and I very casually said, what are these holes everywhere? And she went, oh, tarantula holes. You know, really casually. And I was just like, I wish I'd not asked. You know, Yeah, I I would, that, that would be a bit of insight that I would well, not want, because yeah. then to me, everything I saw would be a tarantula hole. I, no matter if it was or wasn't, I would just assume that there's an eight-legged hairy spider that's as big as my hand or, or more down there. Well, yeah, and they're everywhere. You know, there, there's no escaping them. And it's a case of, you know, oh. when, you, when you poop, you have to dig a hole and you're like, well, am I about to dig out of two? You know, it's just, they're just, it's just eventually you learn to just, they, you know, you're infesting their place. And they're not infesting yours, you know. And you wow, just kind of get, like, is it, they're just speckled? I, I'm sorry to dwell on this. It, it just mm. speckled the landscape, huh? Of trench. Mm. I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Oh my gosh. As my as my American fellow American hiker that I hiked with that week explained to me, she said, if you're scared of the tarantulas, I don't want to tell you about the black widows and the brown recluse and, <laughs> and all these other ones that actually can put you in hospital. I was like, nobody, I never thought that it was gonna be the insects that I honestly believed I was gonna get eaten live by a bear. Yeah, I, I would think, I think most people fall to the cougars, wolves, mm -hmm. bears, things like that. You don't yeah. assume it's going to be the ants, the bees, the spiders, mm -hmm. the whatever scorpions that, that'll get you. And, and oh, so yeah. you carry, uh, you, was there ever, uh, I would imagine there had been moments of pure and unadulterated beauty as well when you did mm -hmm. cross the landscape and you're like, oh my goodness, this is yeah. magical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When, when I mean, <laughs> I'd love to, when you get to the top of a mountain, I mean, you're so beaten up by that stage. You're just like, you know, and after a few months, you're just like, yeah, preview, whatever. I hurt. I just really hurt. can't breathe. I'm so hungry. I'm so sore. This sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing. It was like, by the time I got to Washington, and again, anyone that's from Washington, I apologize in advance for what I'm going to say. But by the time I got to Washington, it was just like, oh, God, I'm so bored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And everyone was like, oh, Washington's so beautiful. And I was like, yeah, it's no different to anywhere else that I've been. Yeah. It's and wetter actually, though, right? It rains uh, that, in, oh. it's, it's a, it's a, a, what do they call it? A tepid rainforest. It's like a cold yeah. rainforest. Yeah. So it it, rain. I would imagine it rains and you're wet and the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by then, of course, you get the huckleberry. <laughs> And, and we don't have huckleberries in the UK because, you know, they're up at, at high levels. And, um, you know, so that was a real treat. So I ended up really loving some parts of Washington. But by then I was, you know, you're wet all the time because of the moisture and the first thing in the morning. The cobwebs that they put between the tree, you know, you have to clear the cobwebs as you're walking along. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so I, I did end up, you know, Washington, absolutely stunningly beautiful. But, but after six months of, or five months of living outdoors, <laughs> you're just like, you're over it. You're just it like, wouldn't, yeah, you, at this point. So I, one thing, like, what, what about water? I, I, so in the deserts, I would imagine it was unbelievably, it's always important, right? You have to have it, but you, it's heavy to carry. So you've got to, it's a balance between how much you carry on your person, how much you drink, 
yeah. and so on. How did you find fresh water? What did you, how, did, how did that work? There are, there are navigational aids, you know, like, so there's a phone, there's an app, or there's a couple of apps you can choose from that actually will show you where the water spots are. But, you know, I used to get really angry. If I had to walk a mile and a half off the trail to go and get water, I used to be livid. Like, why is this water not at my convenience? But if it had been alcohol, yeah, I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> yeah, you, walk 10 miles, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so, you know, I always laugh because when I tell people what my last drink involved, you know, I'd had a really bad day. This is my relapse. And I was living in Scotland at the time. And, and in Scotland, they have a law that you can't buy alcohol after 10 o'clock at night. And so I'd had this bad news come in early mm. evening. And I sat there holding my coffee table thinking, I'm not drinking on this. I'm not going to drink on this. I'm not going to drink on this. I just need to get to 10 o'clock and then I'll be safe, you know. Yeah. And um, a one minute past 10, and that was, you know, I'm sure you can get alcohol somewhere in Scotland, um, but you'd need to know people, and the only right. people I knew were in AA, so they weren't going to bloody tell me, were they? And <laughs> so I remember at one minute past 10, I jumped in my car and I drove to England to go and get booze. And, and you know, it was a good, I can't remember how what the distance was, I think it was about two and a half hours drive mm. to go and buy booze. And that was my last drink. And that's the moment I realized the insanity of yeah. my thinking. A normal person would have a bad day. They may or may not get drunk on a bad day, but they would not get in a car and drive to another country to get alcohol, having sat there telling themselves they're not going to drink for two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, all that time I was driving, you know, all of those bloody stupid AA phrases and words and advice was floating around my head. And then I ended up driving home. And I, I, yeah, I, I, at the time, I'd stopped smoking. And, um, and I remember thinking, OK, I'll buy some cigarettes and I'll displace my emotions with, with cigarettes. And I, so I literally I didn't dare smoke and drive in case I crashed the car. For some reason, I thought one would cause the other. Hmm. And so I, I got back to my house and, and I sat by the river where I lived or was living at the time, lit up a fag and I was immediately sick. And I was like, well, I better have another one then. <laughs> you got to yeah. smoke these things. And, um, and, and so then I started smoking again and it took several more years to went until I went to America, then I, I never actually successfully quit after that. And um, and then at six o'clock in the morning, you can buy booze again. So I just walked across the road at six o'clock in the morning and bought the booze. But I wouldn't drink it until six o'clock at night because I had this rule that if you drank before six, you're an alcoholic. If you drank after six, you were not. And yeah. that was how I defined alcoholism was what time of day you started your first drink. Yeah. And so I was with this 24 hours of madness. I was in this whole oh my God, you're driving a country to buy booze. You're, you're definitely an alky. And then the next day that switch has gone, of course you're not an alky. You're just having a bad time of it. You know? yeah. And I had, I did buy two bottles of wine, fully intending to drink them long before 10 o'clock. So if I needed more, I would easily be able to retain more without having to drive anywhere. And, um, and the, you know, I had the first glass of wine. It did absolutely nothing. No, nothing. Bugger all. Big glass of wine as well. And then I poured the second glass of wine and it did nothing. And that's the first time in my life that I can ever recall that I've had two glasses of wine and not needed, wanted, desired or panicked about where is the third coming from. And I don't I can't explain it to this day and I've never tried to. But that was that gift, that moment of desperation where the sheer terror hit me. If the alcohol is not going to work now, what am I going to do? And, and it was fear, total abject fear, because it was like, you bastards, I hated AA then, you yeah. bastards, you've ruined my drinking, you know, which is what it's supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I, but I, you know, and I went back to a meeting the next day and, and I had a horrific hangover for two glasses of wine, that was madness. And I never told anybody because I hadn't really understood that it's okay to be honest. I never, you know, it was all about trying to show off and trying to be yeah. there and all of that nonsense. Um, and then that night somebody shared and they, sh they told my story, you know, they didn't drink every day. They didn't drink before six o'clock. They had all these rules and regulations about their drinking to prove they were not an alcoholic. Yeah. If you need rules and regulations to prove you're not something, you are. there's a clue that you are something. And, Absolutely. Um, very clear clue. And, and that's when the scales just dropped for me. And it was like, okay, I, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. Um, oh my god what they're saying is i can't do this alone and i believe them and i know i can't do this alone because i've failed so many times um so yes yeah, so all that rant is about the you know the the contradiction when when mortar was a mile and a half off the trail and you know a mile and a half off the trail is, is a good you know couple of hours sort of detoured journey 
and um and when you're doing that many you don't really want to do any extra yeah you um, want to right well, so can i i want to point out the obvious i think in 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 the beauty i'm going to say this and i'm going to gulp that and because some people might cringe when i say this but the beauty of your relapse is it saved you and i mentioned before and I don't want to put words in your mouth, P.I., forgive me. I don't want to say it saved you because it's it's your relapse, not mine. So but what I mean is for the listeners that the relapse wasn't the end of it. The, the relapse in your case was the beginning of it, where you were able to put it down and find the strength in, in the relapse to carry on in a different way. It gave you the clarity. Maybe you know, that, you know, I would love to glorify him that way, but that wouldn't be fair. It was like I'd run out of options. It yeah. was like... And now I'm beat. Yeah. It, I, the right. first time it was like, this isn't working. This isn't a solution. And I'm so damn scared. I just don't know what else to do. Yeah. And, and, and so for me, yeah, absolute gift. Um, and, and we call it, you know, it's called the gift of desperation. Yeah. And that was my gift of desperation. At the time, I was furious. Now, five years down the line, blimey, I'm so grateful. Yeah. Because what happens if it had worked? Yeah. You know, where would I be today? I certainly wouldn't have been, you know, writing books and, and having amazing adventures and having, you know, I've got a huge social life. I'm out all the time. I've got great friends. I live in a beautiful little cottage, you know, in, in a really beautiful part of England. All of these things have happened because of that one day, because of that one moment. And, um, and that's that, you know, no, I'd never believed anyone if they told me that at the time yeah. either. So it it wasn't that I had the strength. It's that I didn't I didn't have any fight left. There wasn't there was I, it was almost yeah. I was just broken and beaten yeah. and and beyond beyond despair. It, it's the saddest bleakest point um, I've ever known. And yeah, I, I had the same thing. I uh, in in a different way. In I just say that I hit rock bottom very very hard a number of times. And I was broken. The doctors had just told me I was going to die. I was not going to survive this um, to get my affairs in order for my wife and my children. The listeners know my story, but I'm saying that that broken moment, that absolute point of no return. I, If this were a book, it was Dante's Inferno and I was not coming out. And I, it was that moment that I began my recovery journey. And I had that three days into my recovery because I hadn't had anything to drink or any drugs or cigarettes at that point. But mentally, I didn't start until the third day and emotionally. Like the, I always thought when I get out of here, I'm just going to carry on the way that I always have. And, and I, at that moment, when I got that news and I, and I was broken and scared and alone and no one comes to see you and no one gives a shit if you're going to die. And, and these are the same. And so I, I'm going to lean back in. So some people did come to see me, some dear friends. And my mom was there. Of course, my wife was there. But fuck all else. And I say that because this is an alone journey, just like yours from Mexico to Canada. You have to take the journey. And I'm saying that all of the posturing and all of the bullshit, when they get angry, you don't come to this event. Or they don't come to that event. And it's all crap because nobody gives a fuck. They don't give a fuck if you live or die. It's up to you to make it. It's up to you. And, and that's that broken moment. Not that they don't give a fuck. It's that we've broken them too. You know, addiction doesn't discriminate. Yes, I'm the addict, but it 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 hurts everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was in Scotland and I had no friends. I knew nobody. Like I say, until I joined AI, I knew nobody really. But when people would invite me to do things, I'd be like, Mm, when and they'd say Friday and it's like no I'm drinking Friday you know I wouldn't tell can't, them yeah, I, I can't go Friday I'm going to be drunk oh, right absolutely right. you know because it's going to interfere with my drinking and, and it was like I can't give up a night's drinking yeah but I, those subtle things and you know when I was walking along and um early days in in, in this big trail and, and I hooked up with somebody who was quite a, a regular drug user and, and obviously you go into towns to get your resupply, your food and whatever. And, and the pandemic hit and her regular supplier wanged up his prices. So she got she went with another supplier, but he couldn't come until the day after. So she stayed in town an extra day just waiting for the dealer to turn up when, when the rest of us were like, right, got to get some miles in, got to go and crush the miles. And she wouldn't see that that's actually, you know, if her burning ambition is to get to Canada, if it was her burning ambition, she wouldn't see that it's nibbling away at her ambitions. 
and, and, and they say this, and it's so true, I see it so often now, you know, a healthy person has a goal, they'll change their behavior so they meet that goal. Whereas an addict or an alcoholic, they will have a goal, then they will change their goal to meet their behavior. So, you know, if I was still a regular user, even if it was just marijuana, say, you know, I would, I would, and having to rely on suppliers to come and deliver the stuff, I'd suddenly go, you know what, I'm just going to walk California, because that's all the time I've got, by the time I factored in having to meet my dealer. And, and so that's, you know, that was the thing that really hit home early on was, you don't even notice that this stuff is gnawing away at the edges of your life. It's so subtle. And it's only, you know, people see it long before you do. Um, anyone could have told you, you know, alcohol was having an effect on my personality. It made me up, down, left, right. You know, I was never yeah. in the center. I was never grounded. And, uh, and I didn't know what kind of, you know, person was going to turn up the next day. You know, was I going to be in a good mood? Or was I going to be faking it, you know, in a good mood? Yeah. And, or was I just going to be no holds barred, angry and, and furious with the world at large? And so, you know, those are the things that I've been liberated from. You know, obviously, I can still be moody, but it's a whole different. It's it's just not as far as an extreme and as as you know, um, life affecting as it as it used to be. Um, but yeah, so you know, those those are the things that always come back. And you know, when when I forget, and this is why I love talking to you because it's, I forget where my addiction took me. You know, and what damage it did to other people because it, it affects. You know. They got deprived of, you know, because I could I could be a great friend. I'm a great listener. I'm, I'm quite a laughing, smiling, happy person. I've got some pretty pragmatic advice for people. But when I'm recovering from my last bender, I'm none yeah. of those. Right. You know, I'm hopeless and useless. Right? No good to anyone. So one, well said, by the way, PI. Uh, what, what was that cresting the final mile? Uh, what was that? I realized, uh, I'm curious because... In my mind's eye, it's the end of a movie, the chorus strikes up, the horns start to blow, but the reality of it's probably not that. I mean, in my mind though, I figure it's like the Lord of the Rings, right? The end of the big battle and, and all of that. But it's, I'm curious for you, was it was Well, it amazing? because of the pandemic, uh, Canada was closed. So you get to the Canadian border and you've got to turn around and start walking back 30 miles, which is a day and a half walk. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't even a think day about and it. a half where you know you've done it, but there's, you know, there's, you, you're in the wilderness. So there's no way of contacting anyone. There's no reception on your phone or anything. Oh man. It's sort of this surreal day and a half where. And I really resented, you know, I was really angry, like, kind of, why did you do this to me? You know, I <laughs> needed to come to a hotel after this and just oh, chill out. But actually, you had to turn around and go back a, about 30 miles. And uh, But what ended up being brilliant was because you're walking back and other people are walking to the border. So you get to see a few people. So you kind of, it's, it's like, oh, you know, it, it was a lot more social than I thought it was going to be. And given that I spent about 70% of my nights sleeping alone, you know, completely on my own. Um, yeah. and, and like the last two weeks in, in, or last three weeks, really two weeks, probably, um, I was hiking with a guy called Jeff. And, and, and so we walked to the border together and, uh, and we expected just it to be the two of us and we were going to be all philosophical and, you know, and shed a few tears and, and yeah. loads of like people had come weekend camping there. So it was really quite busy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And then one guy turned up and he, he lit up this enormous spliff and, and he explained that, you know, oh, he was finishing up from the year previous because he'd, he'd run out of time. And it was, and then when he, he lit up the joint, it was like, yeah, and that's probably why, you know, too much of a party. And, and you know, your choice to do your drugs, if you, if you, you know, for some people it is a choice. I, I now learned for me, it was never a choice. I was always going to yeah. go the route that I was going to go. Um, but, you know, it really, that sort of real seminal moment where it hit up that I'm making different life choices today because I have the power of choice today. If I start drinking or drugging again, I lose that choice, obviously. Yeah. Um, so it was it was weird to have, you know, two heavy drug users bookend my my trip. And, and, and Jeff wasn't a drinker either. So, you know, I mean, he wasn't in recovery. He just wasn't remotely interested in drink you know with those kind of weirdos like what 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 do you mean you don't drink and um and so yeah so so it was it was really weird so sort of we it was a lot more social at the end than it had been um throughout the whole hike 
And then when I got picked up from Hearts Pass, which is the, the, the last road uh, before the Canadian border, as I say, it's sort of 30, 30 kilometers further south. Um, you're just so broken. You're just so beaten physically. Everything now hurts. And it's almost psychological that you allow everything to hurt. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't even want to pretend that I'm not in so much pain now. And, and I, no one had explained, actually, when you stop walking, your whole body seizes. And I couldn't physically walk for about three or four months after I finished. Just getting up out of bed would would I'd, I'd cry with the pain of it. So wow, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, no, I hadn't thought. And I think that you know, again, looking at recovery, when you stop drinking, the consequences of your life as they were as an addict batter you quite from for many of us really batter you for the first few months, if not years, of your you know mm. recovery. And and I think that's um, you know that's that same sort of reality that you know when we put the drink down the consequences don't stop they they reverberate on for quite some time and even you know even the last couple of weeks i've i've had to to face up to the consequence you know i used to be a heavy smoker and a, obviously a heavy drinker and and i've now got a brain aneurysm and and they say you know the chances of them discovering this is, is because you've got something else wrong with you and you have a brain scan and they go oh look there it is and that's what happened to me but they do find that you're more likely, if you're female, that you've heavy, heavily smoked and drunk, you're more likely to have brain aneurysm. Now, it's most likely harmless. You know, it's most likely yeah. not going to be life-threatening, but it's there, you know. So I'm sat there going, mustn't shake my head, mustn't shake my head. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's a consequence. And this is five years down the line, you know, that yeah. I can't rewind all of the damage done. Um, but to be honest, if somebody had told me way back in my early 20s, you're going to end up with brain aneurysm because of smoking and drinking too much, do you think it would have changed the thing? Absolutely not. I'm an addict. Yeah. You know, I live in fantasy land. So it's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to all you losers, but it's not going to happen to me. And that's that's that kind of arrogance of the addict of thinking that we're a bit unique, special and different. Wow. This has been an absolute delight for me. Thank you so much for reaching out, for coming on the show to share your story. I am dying to read your book. I haven't done so yet because we wanted to get the episode recorded. And PI, this has been a magical day. Um, so just in closing, how would the listeners find your book and be able to read your story? And find you anywhere else that you want to be found, actually. <laughs> yeah. So the book is Everything You Ever Told Me, available on Amazon and on Kindle currently. Um, there are plans to sort of put it on Barnes and Noble and all the other things, but it's the time is, is of the essence and, and time is something I don't feel like I have enough of right now. So everything you ever told me, the author is person irresponsible, that's me. And it very much charts, you know, it, it's not a drunk log. So I don't go into great big details of my drinking history. Partly because I didn't want to write the you know, Britannica Encyclopedia. It would have ended up so ridiculously long. <laughs> and, uh, and in part, you know, everyone's drinking journey has similarities and differences. Mine wasn't very gory. You know, there was no arrests. There was no great big drama scenes. Right. It, it was quite boring at home on my own, watching the same YouTube video over and over, thinking I'm having a good time. Um, so yeah, so it's, it doesn't go big into the drinking. It just it just makes clear that I'm an addict. But it, it very much focuses on what I learned in recovery and what I learned from listening to these podcasts every day. And and as you said, it's a one step at a time thing. So I, I you know, and but it was also a big journey of le learning to live with the head demons. Um, I have a head that is always on the go and it's always telling me stuff, and it's always thinking and, and plotting and planning. So a lot of the journey is about dealing with that. And as I say, learning the levels of fortitude that I had and also dealing with fears. You know, there's phobias like bears and rattlesnakes and, you know, that, that didn't, I mean, I encountered all of those animals. I encountered every single animal out there that could be life-threatening. And actually they ended up being the comedic moments. You know? <laughs> um, and then there was the phobias I didn't have that I should have had like bees. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's just learning how to live in fear, but without letting fear make all your decisions for you. Um, because I was scared for much of the time and I was lonely and hungry and angry and tired. And, and as I sort of, you know, information earlier, as addicts, we are great ruminators. So there was an awful lot of recogitating the past and, and that can be really, really painful. I think 
you know, when you get into recovery, there's the temptation to get really, really busy so you don't have to think, which is a dangerous way forward because you're not actually learning to live in your feelings. And when you're out there on your own, that's all you've got is things, is thoughts and feelings to manage. So it, it, you know, and you'd think you'd be safe out in the wilderness from drinking drugs. And as I've explained, it was one of the least safe places in the world because I, I didn't have my support structure and, and there was a lot of drugs around. Um, but that said, was attempted no, because I kept doing what I, you know, had been shown to do. So it very much charts how each step came into play as I went along, you know, that it, initial excitement and feeling terrified at the same time, then having to get quite spiritual and getting that confidence to just say, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to make it to Canada. I don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic, but I'm just going to keep the faith and just keep going and see where it takes me. And then having to deal with you know personality changes and personality clashes and, and things like that so an amazing experience and i'd love to go back and do it again um but <laughs> i don't yeah. think I, I think it's like childbirth you forget how painful it actually was <laughs> um, and so yeah so i keep telling people you know that's probably why i'm an addict is because i forgot how bad the hangovers were you know by four o'clock the next day it'd be like yeah the hangover wasn't so bad after all <laughs> it was fine yeah totally fine um uh, and, and i think free hiking is very like that you forget how bloody awful it was and you just remember the romantic bits and, yeah it wasn't like that at all <laughs> Well, P.I., it has been a tremendous pleasure and my honor to have you on the show. I learned a lot from you. I, I know my listeners will learn a lot from you. I'm going to buy and read your book. And what a tremendous honor. Thank you so very much for being on the show. And I will have you back any time you'd like to share any stories at all. Super. No, I just done a drop of the line. I'll happily talk about myself all day, every day. <laughs> so. I love it. <laughs>